Hello, hello. This is Megan with the VBAC link. I still don't know when it's going to kind of like be normal for me to not have Julie on here with me. So um, it's just my, like, it's still so weird to not say this is Julie and Megan, but this is Megan. And I'm so excited to be with you guys today. Back when school was starting, we posted, I posted on social media and asked people what they would like to see from the VBAC link. Now that all my kids are in school full-time, I'm going to really be diving you know, in on the VBAC link. And a lot of people said they want more stories of vaginal birth after two cesareans. And guess what? Today is that day. We have a VBA 2C story with you today. We have our friend Sarah Ann, and she is going to talk about her journey through her two C-sections and then her VBAC. And before we started recording, we kind of talked about a lot of similarities between her and I's history with cesarean and how crazy it is that if you go through so many people's journeys, and if you go through all of these episodes, you're going to find a lot of similarities with misconceptions. And some of those misconceptions are small, small pelvis, big baby, no, you know, your body can't dilate or failure to progress and all these things. And she has similar things like I did in my story. So I'm excited to hear more about what she went through and how she navigated through into a vaginal birth after two C-sections. And then at the end, we're going to talk a little bit more about those misconceptions and maybe what we can do to avoid them and educate ourselves. So if they do come up, we know how to navigate that. Of course, I have a review of the week, so I'm going to jump right into that. And then we will get into this wonderful story. This is from Renee. <laughs> it's from Apple Podcasts. Her her uh, tag is like Renini, but I'm thinking it's Renee. And it says, best podcast ever. I am so happy I found this podcast. I had a C-section in early 2019 after two days of failed induction. It really caused a lot of stress on me. And even though recovery was fine, my emotions were all over the place. I knew the minute we started trying for our second, I'd want to try for a VBAC. Listening to these stories helped me become so educated and confident in my body. I did have my successful VBAC last month and couldn't be happier. I've learned that believing in yourself and having a provider in your corner really makes all the difference. Julie and Megan are inspirational, positive, and so easy to listen to. Oh, that makes me so happy. Thank you, Renee or Renini. <laughs> Congrats on your VBAC and thank you for sharing with us. And just like she said, it. There are so many factors that come into play when going for a VBAC and not even just for a VBAC, just having a baby in general. You know, you really want to have that supportive provider for the desires of the way you want to birth. You want to have that supportive community feel, whether it be doula, family member, of course, birth partner. You want everyone in your space to be in your corner. And it really does make a difference. If you haven't already, please leave us a review. I love seeing the emails come in and adding them this, to this queue so we can read here on the podcast. You can leave them on Apple Podcasts, Google, Facebook. You can email us. You can Instagram message us. You can Facebook message us. Leave, you know, Google review, whatever you, wherever you are, you can leave a review. We would love it. And we may just be reading your review on the next podcast. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. 
Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Okay, Miss Sarah Ann. Hello. Are you you excited? I am so excited. I'm very excited. Oh, I really appreciate (laughs) you being here today. And like I said, I mean, so many of our followers are wanting more vaginal birth after multiple cesarean stories because sadly... In today's world, it's harder to fight, but it's harder to, well, not even achieve, but like to find a provider to support you in a vaginal birth after multiple cesarean. So thank you for being here today. And I'm so excited for your story. Do you have like anything that you'd like to tell our audience before you dive into your story? You know, I think I'm just, you know, I'm really excited to share my story. And like you said, the provider thing is huge, which I will touch on. And then, yeah, no, just very, very excited. I applied two years ago to be on the podcast. And so when I got that email, I pretty much jumped for joy. (laughs) I know. I know. And then we took our big, long break and everything. And oh, it's so good to be back. I'm loving all the stories. And it is so fun. We have seriously so many podcast submissions. And it was so fun to kind of go back to some of the old ones and send out those emails and, and see, cause yeah, we sent out the emails and it was like, boom, scheduled. So <laughs> we are so grateful for you. And I would love to turn the time over to you to share these beautiful stories of yours. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. Um, so I think the way that I want to kick things off is I want to touch a little bit on um, just pre-baby cause it kind of um, tells the, the full story. But before I do, you know, I just want to mention like a trigger warning. I, I will touch on the topic of miscarriage. So when my husband and I finally decided that we were going to start trying for a baby, you know, I was very, very naive when it came to really anything regarding planning for a baby, the conception process, you know, just the overall pregnancy journey. And so when I did get pregnant after three, four months of trying, I was absolutely elated. And so immediately began planning everything. Um, But what actually ended up happening, unfortunately, was I had a missed miscarriage. So I found out at about the nine-week mark, just at a routine ultrasound, that the baby had stopped growing around five to six weeks. And so I I felt very, very betrayed by my body and very angry that I had lost this opportunity to enjoy any sort of, you know, in my mind at the time, it was, you know, being able to enjoy any future pregnancies in that kind of... um, like that ignorant bliss, I guess, for a lack of a better word. But what ended up happening was I, I was actually pregnant within one cycle after the miscarriage. So to put it in, into perspective, I had a DNC on April 11th. And then within by June 10th, I had a positive pregnancy test in my hand. So I really didn't allow myself a lot of time to grieve or go through the process of all the emotions up from the miscarriage which subsequently actually carried into my second pregnancy. So, so with my first baby, you know, I was pregnant with my firstborn and I quite literally was a complete puddle of emotion the entire pregnancy. Anything that I felt or I didn't feel created extreme anxiety for me. I literally worried about everything. So because of that experience of going through the miscarriage, I let fear play a large role. 
um, in how my pregnancy played out. And I think that parts of it actually contributed to my C-section. So for example, I stopped moving in any way. I didn't, I stopped exercising. I was quite an active person before getting pregnant, but I had all of these fears in my mind and, you know, they can sometimes spiral, right? So I let that fear kind of eat away at me. So I stopped, you know, exercising. I really indulged in that whole eating for two mentality, you know, staying away from, you know, outside of staying away from like the recommended foods to avoid, I didn't really eat healthy, which actually led to quite a bit of weight gain. Um, So aside from that, you know, again, kind of going back to this whole theme of being very naive, because I feel like like the topic of pregnancy and preparing for childbirth is not a, you know, widely discussed conversation, at least, you know, in the, the OB world. And so I did have an OB and, you know, pretty much I listened to anything and everything that he told me. I really did not know that I had a choice in anything at all, or if I had the ability to have questions. So I remember being close to full term and being told at one point, okay, we're going to do a sweep today at this appointment. I had no idea what that was. And I actually didn't even know, know that I had the option to decline. And so I remember you know, for other examples, I remember my doctor talking to me about pain management and being told that I needed to get the epidural. He said that, you know, it's completely unnecessary for women to try and do childbirth without any pain intervention, you know, and upon reflection, I I was really only educated on things that the practice that I was at wanted me to know or had opinions on. Um, so I really didn't know that I had alternative choices offered. And he or, wasn't making it sound like there were any no. either. No, it pretty much was just like, this is the way it is. And this is what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so when I finally did go into labor, um, they were actually very, very inconsistent and all over the place for over 24 hours. I actually didn't know what was really going on. I was like, why isn't labor picking up? You know, this has been over 24 hours. But what I didn't realize at the time that, you know, this could possibly be a sign of a poorly positioned baby. And so I also had an anterior placenta. And, you know, I I think it's important to note that I reclined for most of my pregnancy. So for those who follow like the spinning babies, for example, my belly button was always straight up in the air for most of my pregnancy. And so even though I didn't know it at the time, my baby was actually OP. And so I think it was sometime around four, um, probably about two centimeters, I went into the hospital and I was, you know, immediately admitted, you know, within, you know, the hour, even though I was still in very, very early labor. Um, In hindsight, I wish I had actually been sent home to, you know, continue moving and trying to get labor to pick up a little bit more on my on its own. But again, you know, requested the epidural, even though I wasn't really in a whole lot of pain. But again, kind of going back to that conditioning that I had been told from my doctor, like, just get the epidural right away. So again, if, if I'm only at about two, three centimeters, I've now had the epidural. I'm now completely laid up in bed on my back. Nobody is offered for me to be turned or nobody has offered me a peanut ball, for example. My doctor comes in around four centimeters. He says, you know, let's just get things moving. I'm going to break your water and we'll get you on Pitocin. Let's get things moving along. So baby was completely fine at this point. There was really no contradictions to anything that was happening. It was more or less just him saying, let's, you know, let's pick things up. So I laid in bed for the next five hours. Again, not moving, just completely on my back. And, you know, unsurprisingly, doctor came in five hours later, I was still at four centimeters, had not progressed at all. And he just basically said, you know what, we need to do a C-section. And, you know, because of the miscarriage that I had gone through and just all of the anxiety leading up until that point, I pretty much just agreed. And so that was my firstborn. It was a little girl and she came in weighing at um, seven pounds and 15 ounces. 
Which is like a perfect size. Yeah. Yeah. And so I kind of, you know, I really didn't have a whole lot of like ill feelings towards that labor and delivery. I honestly just thought it was a one-off again, you know, not being educated and being very naive. I just kind of figured, you know, that was just what happened that time around. And the next time, you know, would be totally different. And I would just, you know, have a V back. And so I got pregnant with my second 10 months later. So 10 months after my C-section. So my, my oldest two, they're about 20 months apart. And so I was more relaxed this time around, but I still didn't take the opportunity to educate myself. Um, so I did switch providers and go with more of like, um, it's called like a primary network of care providers here in Edmonton. Um, so I had this, this one doctor, she was my one doctor for all the pre- prenatal care, but the doctors who delivered the babies, there was kind of on a rotational baby um, basis. And so like there was an opportunity to do a meet and greet, but it was, it was kind of like you get who you get when you go into labor kind of thing. And so again, kind of ref- as I was reflecting and kind of going through my notes for this session, it's funny how, you know, some of those red flags actually come up, like with some of the things that were told to me again by, you know, my provider. So I wanted to share some examples. And so one of the things that was said to me was, you know, if you're feeling really anxious in any way about this delivery, because you've already had a C-section, you can literally walk into a hospital right now and they have to give you a C-section. So no talk or encouragement about a VBAC at this Mm, point. It was just like, go get your C-section. Another thing that was said was, you know, please know if, if things don't work out the way that you want them to, you will never again have the opportunity to try for a VBAC. Um, so again, all this like conditioning going into my mind about, you know, like it just adds a lot of pressure, right? So in my mind at the time, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, like if I don't have a VBAC this time around, like I'll never get the opportunity to do it again. And then the third kind of quote I wanted to share was, I had asked my provider, you know, well, does it impact like kind of fertility and future children if if I have to have a C-section this time around. And she was like, no, 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 no. You know, you can have as many C-sections as you want. It doesn't affect anything in any way. I once saw a woman who had 10 C-section and she actually said this in a very like admirable tone. And so it was almost like it was very glamorized. And it, like, again, kind of reflecting, I'm like, why did I not recognize these red flags, right? And so if I'm kind of comparing to my first as well, I think, you know, I had a very similar pregnancy. So again, I did not engage in the healthiest of lifestyles, did not exercise, didn't eat properly. I gained a considerable amount of weight, reclined my entire pregnancy. And when I started to get close to term, I started to stress a crazy amount. I stressed and stressed and stressed. I was like, why am I not going into labor? I need to go into labor early. This baby is just getting bigger. And so it just kind of compounded on top of everything else that I was kind of going through from like a mental perspective, right? Like knowing in my mind, thinking at the time, you know, you'll never get the chance to do this again if you don't, you know, have your V back. And so just very, very stressed. And so I actually opted for like two or three sweeps a week, uh, a week. And I tossed and turned every night, just, you know, desperately waiting for any sign of labor to come. Um, so labor actually did start on its own eventually. It was about a week past due, and it was a very identical pattern to my first. Very inconsistent, irregular contractions all over the place would not pick up, just kind of stop start. And so again, kind of not realizing at the time that my baby was again, you know, OP baby. I did have an anterior placenta this time around as well. 
And so I went to the hospital again too early, you know, in very, very early labor. But because I was a past C-section mom, I was immediately admitted. And, you know, you start to get those, um, those individuals start to come talk to you about, you know, their kind of views and perceptions on, on C-sections and VBACs as well. And so I remember being tracked down in the hall at one point when I was walking through, you know, um, my contractions and the nurse said, oh, you know, I just talked to your doctor. She wants to break your water. It's not going to do anything other than pick things up. What do you say? Um, and so I honestly didn't know at the time that, you know, if you break your water too early and baby's in a poor position, that this can make them more or less kind of be further right. stuck. Right. Right. Yeah. Which like in your first story, right? In your first birth, like, I'm like, okay, OP baby, four centimeters, water breaks, baby comes down, OP, it's going to take longer to dilate. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So pretty much the exact same thing was happening with the second baby. And so now that my water is broke, I needed the epidural because the contractions were so strong. You know, I made it to about six centimeters this time around. I was so frozen though from the epidural, I could not even wiggle my toes. Like it was just cranked to the max. And so baby went into distress at this point and they called in for a second opinion. I was actually very, very devastated at this point around that I knew things were starting to look like a C-section. And then so a seasoned doctor came in and something happened to me that was actually very, very profound and, you know, played a very, very large role in my my third pregnancy, which was my, my VBAC after two Cs. But he did a check on me and he said, your baby is sunny side up and your pelvis is shaped like a V. And he held to his index finger and his middle finger up to kind of make a V shape. And he said, baby's not going to come. And so, and I'll kind of touch on that when I, you know, go into my third pregnancy, but just that single moment right there of him telling me that I had this V shaped pelvis, which later on in my mind, I thought was like an Android shaped pelvis. It really played a large mental game for me, but So baby was born. He was born stunned and very unresponsive. It was quite traumatic. Um, I do recall a lot of like code pink being shouted over and over. And so it was pretty much a whirlwind of a birth and and very, very traumatic. So he was my second born, a little boy, and he weighed nine pounds and five ounces. So he was quite a bit bigger. Um, But, you know, in hindsight, nothing that I think I would have had trouble with if I had been, you know, if the baby had been more better positioned. So he actually ended up having to be in the NICU for a few days. And while he was in the NICU, I was recovering in my room and this one nurse came in and she, she was so kind. I remember her so vividly in my mind. I actually only ever saw her once. Um, She never came back after that. And she said something to me. She said, I was telling her how disappointed and you know sad I was that I didn't get my V back. And she said in the most casual tone ever, well, you know, maybe your next one will be your V back. And it was so profound for me. I was like, you know, how could this experienced labor nurse be telling me something that apparently all these doctors had been telling me that, you know, you could never have a VBAC after two C-sections. I was like, wait a minute, what are you telling me that, you know, this is an actual thing? You know, so this actually, (laughs) this actually opened up a whole new door for me because this kind of, at this point, I kind of was starting to realize in my mind that there was not a consistent form of care or approach to C-sections and VBACs as I had originally thought. Mm. I just thought that this was the rule and this was the way it was and that's the way it had to be. But obviously it's, you know, not the truth. Oh, and you're um, not alone out there. Yeah. A lot of people do. Like I, you know, a lot of people will, will have conversation, right? I talk about what I do all the time and people will say like, what do you do? And I say, oh, I talk about birth 
you know, after cesarean options and they're like, well, there aren't any options. So what do you talk about? Yeah. And I'm like, there actually are <laughs> options. And I'm like, you know, and I, we talk about my story and they're like, no, you didn't like, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's crazy. So <laughs> it was actually, as I, as I reflect kind of like on everything as a whole, that was kind of a very distinct, you know, kind of moment in my memory that really changed the course of things for me for like my future pregnancy. And so at my six week follow-up appointment, after having my second C-section, I actually went and saw this doctor, you know, who had delivered my son. And I, I asked him about a VBAC next time around. And he was so hesitant. He shook his head. He was so reluctant. He's like, you know, your baby would need to be less than seven pounds for you to be even be able to do it. And no doctor in their right mind will induce you. So again, like, again, with the misinformation, right? Like uh, people, these doctors have different opinions as far as like, you know, the way things should be done and how things should be done. Um, and they just, they state it to you as like a matter of fact, as opposed to their opinion. And so it really kind of plays on, you know, you having to try and decipher what is truth in this, what is like, maybe not necessarily truth. But at that point, I had already had a sudden thirst for the truth. You know, I remember going home and putting out this post on, in Canada here, we have this um, Canada-wide baby forum that you can ask all these different, like anonymous questions for all these different groups. And so in the VBAC group, I had asked this question. I said, is this true what this doctor had told me? And this one woman responded to me and she's like, it's not like they can tie you down to a table and force you to have a C-section. And I was like, whoa, this is just, you know, all of this like light opening up in front of me. I was like, okay, things are going to be different next time around. So I knew, I knew going into my third pregnancy because we wanted to have three children. I knew things that would be completely different this time around. So I actually got pregnant with my third so my my youngest two are exactly two years apart. And so when I got pregnant with her, I actually started my preparations well in advance of being pregnant with her because I, I was very determined to do everything different right from the start. So even before I was pregnant, um, so for those um, that year leading up to me, even trying to conceive with my husband, I began preparing my body um, before I was in pregnant. So I brought my BMI down to, I think it was about a 23. I exercised regularly. I enrolled in hot yoga because I wanted to learn how to, you know, loosen my body and take a little bit more of a holistic approach to taking care of myself. Right. And I actually started going to, um, if this was pre-COVID, we had a VBAC support group here in Edmonton um, that I had come across. And so I started attending some of those meetings before COVID happened. And, you know, really any information that I could find on feedbacks after two cesareans, I literally devoured immediately. So um, I think this is at this point, I came across the VBAC link, which honestly, <laughs> quite honestly changed my life, both from an information perspective, but also a community perspective, because, um, you know, as you know, like the community there is huge, 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 right? And everyone yeah. is so supportive. So it was really quite life changing. I know. I love like the Facebook community, like our little private group too. Like everyone is so sweet in there. Yes. You know, there's so much love. Yeah. Regardless of the outcome there, like you said, there is just so much love and support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah. And so I even actually did some research on placentas because I had, I had read that, you know, there is a increased chance of OP babies when you have an anterior placenta. And so it's funny, I'm, I'm by nature, a stomach sleeper. I always have been. 
And I had read that if, you know, when you're trying to conceive, if you sleep on your back, you have a higher chance of a posterior placenta. So I don't really know if there's any truth to that, but I will say I changed from being a stomach sleeper to a back sleeper while I was trying to conceive for my third baby. Interesting. Yes. And I ended up having a posterior placenta. Really? Yes. Oh my goodness. I'm actually a back sleeper too. And I always worried about having an anterior placenta but always had a posterior placenta, but that, wow. Yeah. And I can't even remember where I came across that information, but actually I told my midwife that too. And she had the same reaction. She's like, it makes sense. I was like, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like gravity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just the natural law of gravity. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so then some of the other things I did, you know, I'd seen, I think it was Julie who did a five minute fear release video on YouTube. Oh yes, she did. Yeah. 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 So I, I started to recognize the importance of not only like body, like physical preparation, like healing my body, but also like the, the mental component as mm-hmm. well. So like mm-hmm. healing your mind for it working on through all those fears, working through the trauma. I saw like a, um, a birth trauma therapist to work through some of the trauma from my second birth. I actually, um, I, I wanted to touch on this as well. So I did this emotion code therapy as well. And so I, I'm not sure how many people are too familiar with it. It's kind of like a form of Reiki, but basically the it's it was developed by this this chiropractor actually. And so what it is, is it works on, you know, releasing trapped emotional energy and certain parts of your body to try and release, you know, the negative energy that um, Mm -hmm. is kind of being housed there from past trauma. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. And a really, really, I guess it's a profound thing that happened to me during one of the sessions. So I was working with this woman and she, we were going through the session and she was working on releasing this energy with me. I had never told her ever, ever discussed really with anybody that I had had a miscarriage. And while she was working on my pelvis, she stopped so suddenly and she looked at me and she said, I'm so sorry to ask this, but have you ever had a miscarriage before? Mm. And I was so taken back. I was like, um, yes, I yes. have. Right. I'm really I was really caught off guard. And she said, I'm you know, I'm so sorry to be erasive and ask this question so frank to you. But she goes your baby just told me that it was the baby from the miscarriage and that it's come back to you. And she started crying and even I kind of get choked up thinking about it. And I obviously, I was like, just literally like tears were flowing, you know, down my face. Mm -hmm. Like this is such a, like for those who, you know, are, you know, active in the spiritual community or have like a belief in a higher faith, um, a higher belief um, and have that faith. This was really profound for me. It was really kind of like this full circle kind of experience that I was, I was kind of going through. Um, so I just, I did want to mention that as well, because it was something that was really special that I experienced That's during the pregnancy. Pretty unique too, yeah. like to hear, like it's a unique thing to hear, you know, yes. to be yeah. told and to have her feel that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And to watch her cry too, right? Like to see the emotion because, you know, I, I feel like, you know, people can just say that here and there, but just to see the emotion in her face and to see the overwhelm that she was going through. I was like, wow, this is, this is intense, (laughs) but yeah, so it was, it was pretty profound. And then just, you know, some of the other things that I did, you know, that differently this um, time around, you know, when I eventually did find out I was pregnant, I was like, okay, I applied for a midwife, you know, I hired a doula, I enrolled in, you know, hypno baby classes 
there were so many things that I did differently this time around. I was very, very active. I, you know, I did cardio four to five times a, a week. You know, I saw a chiropractor. I saw an acupuncturist. I really just did everything that I, I thought I could, you know, was within my kind of power to do. Um, I worked on food. I saw a dietitian to help me, you know, make healthier, you know, food choices. And I found spinning babies, for example, and did forward leaning inversions for 40 sec- 45 seconds every day. And then just really worked on all those different pain management techniques with my doula. So I really felt, you know, I had done as much as I possibly could within my power to prepare for this labor, regardless yeah. of what the outcome was. And so for me, those kind of final final weeks, the biggest thing for me was that mental game, just accepting that whatever is meant to be will be, and it's going to be okay either way. And just kind of trying to relax and, you know, you know, work on that mental component and not stressing. So I guess in my final week leading up to the the delivery, you know, I really was relaxed. I pampered myself. I, I stopped working out. I really just wanted to, you know, breathe and make sure I was having a very positive experience. I also never had a single sweep the entire pregnancy, nor did I have a check. And my midwife was completely fine with that. She's like, literally, your cervix isn't going to tell me anything until you're in labor. So she's like, I'm totally on board with you. And so I, I ended up, personally. yeah. Yeah, because it really yeah. doesn't. It doesn't tell us anything, <laughs> and even in even in early labor, like we're in early labor, it's not telling us much besides exactly. we're in early labor, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I really actually didn't have. I don't think I had my first check until I was in the hospital with her, because um, our midwives here have hospital access. Um, I'm not sure if that's like that everywhere, but. So I, so I went into labor with my third baby on Thanksgiving, Canadian Thanksgiving Sunday morning. And so it was, it was such a beautiful experience. Like I woke up, I was calm. My husband was calm. You know, we just kind of relaxed the whole day. And then about, um, I would say probably about eight, nine o'clock that night. It's when it really, things really started to hit me hard and fast. And so this was, again, was a very new experience to me because as I had mentioned in my first two labors, you know, it was like that stop start, couldn't figure out what, what was going on. You know, there was no rhyme or reason to like the labor pattern. But, you know, once I kind of hit a more of an active stage, it was like, wow, this is super, super intense. So they were coming at me very consistent. I think I threw up a couple of times, but my doula assured me that that was totally normal. She seemed totally okay with it, even though I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm throwing up in front of her right now. Listen, burps, toots, and pukes. Yeah. Burps, toots, and pukes. Those things are good signs. That's, <laughs> That's right. what I always tell my clients. And they're like, I'm so sorry I'm burping. I'm like, this is a good thing. Baby's moving down. Air is moving. <laughs> yeah, yep. exactly. So new experience for me, but you know, like I said, she was totally cool with it. <laughs> but the intensity did overwhelm me. So, you know, contrary to what some others feel, I actually felt a lot safer being in the hospital. Um, I never really felt like it was an unsafe space for me. So because our midwives have like hospital access, we just kind of get our room. And then for the most part, we're supposed to be like left alone. Now, because I was uh, um, going for a VBAC after two cesareans, there were some doctors at the hospital who were a little uptight about what was happening. I remember my midwife saying to me, like, she got, you know, cornered in in the hallway and being like, why are you doing this? Um, but she's like, listen, we're doing this. And so my first check after I got into the hospital, my midwife was like, you know what, let's just, let's just do a check. So we have a baseline. So this was my first time. 
she, um, my dealer was like, you know, whatever it is, don't worry. It's just kind of a baseline. So I was two centimeters and I will have to admit, I was very surprised that I was only two centimeters after the intensity of what I was experiencing. Cause again, it was so new to me, but again, it really didn't mean anything at that point. And so I labored on the toilet in the shower. I did some hypnosis and, you know, I had a bit of help from, from some morphine. At one point, one of the doctors came in and he was quite rude he had said that he had looked up all my last reports and it, one of the reports had showed that I actually had a T incision from my last C-section. Oh, really? Yeah. And this was completely news to me, complete news to my midwife. Cause she had obviously gone through all my history. So I have no idea where this came from. I never heard it in my, any of my past reports or like follow-up appointments. It was literally the first time I'd ever heard it. And so he had said that it actually increases the risk by 5% or more. I don't know. I don't know the stats, so I don't know if that's true, but this is just what he had said to me. And so he was quite aggressive about it. And I literally looked at him in the eye. I was like, listen, unless me or baby are in danger, I'm not consenting to anything. And so I actually didn't see him again (laughs) after that. So I think, you know, he just wanted to come in and make his point and then he left it. Let us be after that. Interesting. Had you ever, have you since gone back and looked through any of your op reports, like to see that you've do in fact have a special scar? No, I should though. Like, I mean, cause he's the way that he positioned it was, um, that during the second C-section it, there was a tear while they were doing it. And uh-huh. I think that's what led to the T incision. Um, but I'm so, not quite, quite sure. So you had a vaginal birth after two C-sections with special scar potentially. Yes. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, that just adds a little spin to your story. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Keep going. I'm excited. Keep going. Yeah. So he yeah. leaves the room. He leaves the room. He leaves the room. He doesn't come back. I'm quite glad that he doesn't come back because he just brought a negative energy with him. And quite frankly, I just think he wanted to come in and be like, this is, you know, he wanted to assert his authority or whatever they mm-hmm. want to do at that point. Right. Mm-hmm. But everything was fine. Baby was doing beautifully. I was totally good. You know, I, I like I was saying, I was laboring in the bathroom. I lost my mucus plug. I think it was about 9.30 in the morning at this point, and I was about four centimeters dilated. So contractions were still coming very, you know, consistent on their own. And so I was about 11 and I finally, you know, I didn't want to, but I felt at this point I'd been laboring for over 24 hours and I wanted the epidural. And so my doula and my husband are like, wait a second, like, are you sure you've literally spent the last nine months telling us that you'll be super upset if you let us get the epidural? And I was like, no, like I've made peace with whatever will happen. I definitely want the epidural. And so while I was waiting for that, my my water actually broke naturally on its own. Mm-hmm, okay. And yeah, so things were still progressing very, very nicely. So I got the epidural and I don't know if like the stars were just aligned for me at this point, but the epidural took effect just enough to take the edge off. So I still had quite a bit of pain, but it was manageable and it was almost like a walking epidural. Even though my midwife was saying like, there's no such thing because I had asked her about it. Yeah. Um, I could fully move. I could move my legs. I was changing positions on my own. I was kind of like on all fours at one point. So, you know, I didn't actually try to walk. I'm sure I could have if I wanted to though, but it, like I said, it just took the edge off. And so it wasn't a very kind of full blast epidural. So mm-hmm. I think that really helped me with like all the position changes. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think with the walking epidural thing, it's, that, that they don't really exist, meaning like you can't just get up and walk the halls, right? But yes. you can move your body. You can even have an assisted squat. 
things like that. Like there, I, I feel like they need to change it from walking epidural to like light epidural. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Or minimal. Epi- I, I don't even know what they half epidural. <laughs> I don't yes. know what, you know, something because people think that they can get up and walk around and, and usually there's, they can't. Yeah. But quite a bit of difference. Like I was saying with my second, right? Like I was so frozen. I couldn't even wiggle my toes to now just being like fully mobile. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. So very, very helpful in that sense. And again, like how come, I guess like these are all my questions in my mind. Like why doesn't anybody ask you, do you want like a full blast or epidural or do you want just like a little bit? Like nobody talks about this and nobody Uh asks you. I know. I wish that they did. But yeah, so I think it was around three o'clock in the afternoon. I was around six centimeters. You know, the head was coming down nicely, but baby was managing really well. We were rotating positions every 30 minutes and I was using the peanut ball. About two and a half hours later, I was seven centimeters. There was another midwife that came in to relieve my current midwife, but they all, all were within the same practice. And so they were very, very supportive. And I actually, at this point, um, because I'd been in labor for quite some time, I actually started to get a little bit of a fever. And so it's funny, this doctor that came in to, to prescribe the antibiotics that were recommended from my midwives, they were preparing me. They're like, okay, he's going to come in. He has a history of telling women who are trying for VBACs that their babies are going to die and that they're going to die. So whatever he tells you, just ignore him and just tell him that you want the antibiotics. I was like, okay, I'm ready for whatever he tells me. He comes in. He's like, yeah, let's just do some antibiotics. Sounds good. And he walks out. And the midwives like look at each other in disbelief. They're like, I can't believe that just happened. They're like, like, this doctor does not do this. Yeah. (laughs) Like, who is this guy? (laughs) So that did help me um, a bit out with the, with the fever. But again, kind of, we're starting to get around like the seven o'clock timeframe. Baby's heart rate is now kind of baseline is 155, but contractions are every two minutes. And so now I'm about an eight stretch to a nine kind of um, as far as progress goes. And baby actually is starting to move down nicely. And so I think it was at this point where I was like, oh my gosh, is this really going to happen? I think this is going to happen. And so I was kind of in disbelief because it's kind of like one of those moments where you're like, you've dreamt about it for so long and, you know, it's starting to come to fruition and you're like, wow, is this going to happen for me? And the midwife did a check and she, I was almost, you know, fully dilated. There was a little bit of a lip present. And she looked at me and she's like, I think you're going to do it. And I had goosebumps at that moment. And I was like, oh my gosh, my midwife thinks that I'm going to do it. You know, so it was pretty, a pretty um, impactful thing for her to say to me. And I think right before I started pushing, one other thing happened was I said to her, I'm like, do I have an Android pelvis? Again, like that fear just kind of came back into my mind, you know, coming back from like that second birth that I had had, where he said that you have, you know, a a small pelvis and you'll never do it with a baby that's bigger than seven pounds. And she shook her head so aggressively. She's like, your pelvis is fine. You are going to birth this baby. No problem. (laughs) And after that, it was go time. So I started pushing. I pushed for about an hour. Baby was born via forceps, but it was only because she was, she had that elevated heart rate. Um, but my midwife, she needed time. It was more of a time thing. It was more of a time thing. Yeah. So my midwife Mm -hmm. is like, I, I literally have no doubt in my mind that she would have come naturally on her own, but it was just, you know, we, we thought it was best to get her out at that point. Right. So, yeah. And then they put her on my chest and she was a surprise baby. She was a girl and there was lots of tears and (laughs) everybody was cheering. So I had this big birth team that had been working with me for so long. And even like my midwife, I was her first um, VBAC after two cesareans and, um, it was a very, very, very special moment. 
That's amazing. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. So happy for you. And I love how she was like, your pelvis is fine. Yeah. <laughs> she was like, there's it's nothing wrong fine. with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that should be one of our next shirts. We we sometimes <laughs> will make, bon- well, Julie would totally do it. She would make like bonfire shirts based off of little quotes that were <laughs> said in podcast. Your pelvis is fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, huge congrats. That's Thank you. so amazing. So amazing. And look at that. Your pelvis was fine. Yep. And your body could do it. Yeah. Oh, I should note she was eight pounds. So she was over the seven pound mark. Bigger. Yeah. yeah. Bigger. Bigger than your because seven fifteen was your first. Yeah. Seven. Yeah. And then what was your second again? Nine five. Um, nine nine five. Nine five. Yeah. yeah. But it was an OP. Same. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's amazing. That's so amazing. Well, yeah, I'd love to talk about. So I hate we hate this word, right? Like we we hate the word failure. It's yes. it's really poor. And when we say it, we're referring to it in the way that the medical profession professionals use it is failure to progress. Now, my little tidbit in this, if you see failure, try your hardest to know you're not a failure. If you don't give birth vaginally, you're not a failure. If you decide to get an epidural, there is no failing in birth. You are birthing a human being. That's pretty stinking incredible, right? Um, it doesn't really matter how you do it. It's it's remarkable. It's amazing. It's oh, so many words, right? Like you guys are amazing and you are full of strength. But we talk about failure to progress or is it failure to wait? And a lot of the times we believe that it's it's a lot of the times failure to wait. And there, you know, there's a um, ACOG study that shows that before it was failure to, they would like deem failure to progress at like more of that four centimeter stage, which is what kind of where you yeah. mentioned with your first, um, you know, where you got to four centimeters, it broke your water, which I also would like to touch on um, the way he said that, but then they would like pay four hours. It's done now. Now it's active labor. Isn't really considered super ac- accurate and active until six centimeters. So even at four centimeters, we shouldn't be deemed or given the term failure to progress. I was also given the term failure to progress Mm. and I was at like three centimeters. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And, and there's like no cervical change, meaning like no effacement, no station change, nothing happening. And that's like within a long time. So we have a blog about, is it failure to progress or failure to wait? Right. And the ways that we may have failure to progress, like things that may lead to failure to progress. And one of them is breaking water prematurely. So for my doula clients, they'll always say like, should I break my water? And that's really a hard question because sometimes breaking your water can totally do the trick and get you a baby here pretty quickly and smoothly. And it's beautiful. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't, it brings baby down, baby's in a poor position. They start having heart rate issues. And then it's just a downward spiral from there. But breaking water prematurely and the way your provider did it was like, Hey, I'm here. We're going to get things going and I'm going to break your water. Yeah. I wanted to note to all of our listeners that a lot of providers do that. And I don't think it's because they have any necessary ill intent, like to like, say like, I'm doing this, you know, like you have no choice, but the way they say it sometimes makes people feel like they have no choice. And we a long time, a lot of the time go along with it. Kind of like you did. 
mm-hmm. my water had already broken, but like, I was just kind of like, okay, they're, they're just telling me what they're going to do and they're just doing it. And cool. Like, I didn't really like, I didn't really play a part in my birth in that way, but like, no, it's okay to say, hold on, not ready to break my water yet. Let's talk about it. <laughs> you know, like let's look at the factors. And so I always tell my clients, like breaking your water, if it doesn't happen spontaneously or naturally, and they're wanting to do artificially, it's kind of a, a, a wild card, right? So we got to look at a lot of things like how high is baby? What is my baby's position? Do we know how is my labor pattern? Is it strong and effective or is it early on? And that's why we're breaking water to try and get, you know, things to go. So there's so many little factors. So definitely check out the blog. Um, we'll make sure it's in the show notes. And then we'll also include the show in the show notes, the video that Sarah Ann talked about that Julie did about fear release because it's amazing. And then, yeah, anything else that you would like to say about just misconceptions and the whole shebang? I think the, like the best recommendation I could give is just to, to really truly believe in yourself and just surround yourself with people who believe in you, because that makes such a huge difference. You know, I, I hear so many and read so many stories on like on the VBAC link community of people who don't have their, their group who are supporting them. And that's, you know, probably why they're at the, on the, the Facebook group, you know, for that support, but it makes such a huge difference. And I was very, very assertive with people, you know, kind of in my circle saying like, if, if you have any sort of like negative, you know, thoughts or opinions, I don't want to hear them. And, you know, I mean this in the nicest way possible, but you will not see me until after I have this baby, Mm -hmm. if that's the case. So Mm -hmm. having that group is really, really important. It really is. Um, we did a like a I can't remember what they call it, like a mother's blessing, but we did like a like a little circle thing and we all did like this yarn thing. It was really cool and like we connected. So each time we would wrap a piece of yarn around and in our circle, it was based off of a positive affirmation. And that piece of yarn was a strong affirmation, right? And it stuck with me and I wore it all through labor and my birth. And I just think it's so important to have those people who like, you know, they weren't all with me physically, but every time I looked down, I remembered my circle. I remembered their words and it touched me and it made me stronger and encouraged me to keep going. Right. So, you know, get your circle and hold on to them tight and don't be scared to tell people that you love them and you're grateful for them, but they're not invited into your circle. Right. It's okay to not have people in your circle. My mom, wasn't necessarily one of my mom, my people in my circle. She wasn't super supportive. She didn't really understand why I wanted to have a vaginal birth. Um, she thought it was scary. She didn't understand the risks, all these things. She told me I was crazy, lots of things. Right. And like, it was really hard for me to not have my mom in my circle, but at the same time, that's what I needed at the time to keep my circle positive. So yeah, I would definitely, definitely agree with that. Okay. Well, thank you so much again for being with us today. Yeah, I so I so appreciate it and so enjoyed it. So thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Would you like to be a guest on the podcast? Tell us about your experience at the vbacklink.com slash share. For more information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, and Julian Megan's bios, head over to the vbacklink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.